and this court will be adjourned until the jury's verdict is reached. Tim Gunny Turner joined the Canadian Armed Forces in 1982, first as a reservist, and by 1986 was a paratrooper with the Canadian Airborne Regiment. At the time, the Airborne Regiment was Canada's premier rapid reaction, highly specialized parachute force of infantry commandos. The regiment traced its lineage to the Second World War era Canadian Parachute Battalion and First Special Service Force. Though still a conventional military unit, in many respects the Airborne was a precursor to the capabilities of what would later be assumed by JTF-2 and the Canadian Special Forces Command. In addition to his parachuter qualifications, Gunny was active as a master sniper in the Princess Patricia's Light Infantry. After more than 20 years in the Army, Gunny embarked on a second career with the Alberta Sheriffs, largely in the Executive Protection Unit, where he traveled the province, the country, and across the world with Premiers and Lieutenant Governors. Gunny served Canadians and later Albertans for almost 40 years, and within minutes of speaking with him, it's apparent that he's a man of deep appreciation for duty and national and civic pride. In our conversation, Gunny provides listeners with an inside look the operations and capabilities of the Alberta sheriffs, along with a good dose of Canadian military history. Fall is in the air here in Vancouver. This is episode 12 with Tim Gunny Turner. I'm Dan Coles, and this is Under Reserve. Gunny, look, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Where are you this morning? I am in Comox, BC. Beautiful BC. Just loving it out here. What's the weather doing this morning? Oh, it's beautiful. It's, uh, Right now, it's about 15 Celsius, blue skies, zero winds. Doesn't get any better. Fucking A. Uh, Look, I saw on Instagram uh, earlier this week a photo of you and then Prince of Wales, now King Charles. What can you tell me about that photo? Pretty cool. Yeah, so he um, he's actually uh, affiliated to the Parachute Regiment in England. Uh, So he actually went through the training. So he is a paratrooper. And I was on tour in Cyprus as a young trooper in the commando. And a few of us uh, were picked to go have tea with him. And what the purpose of the visit was, the 3rd Battalion Parachute Regiment was overseas at the same time we were. So he was coming over to do his visits with the regiment. And what they had decided, obviously, months prior to this, probably years prior, is to sign the 3rd Battalion um, Parachute Regiment to the Canadian Airborne Regiment to be our sister unit. So he came over to sign the paperwork. So it was a combined tea with selected Parachute Regiment members and um, two commando members. And what year is this? 1986 in Cyprus. 1986, Cyprus. Yeah. You're having actually tea with the Prince of Wales? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We <clears throat> first had, you know, like standing... Uh, non-cocktails, obviously, just yeah. standing in chats where he would group with us. And then we all went combined into the other room for tea. And uh, did you get a word in with the prince? Yeah, I did. Um, I can't remember the full conversation, but, you know, I had a good, uh, you know, one minute of uh, conversation with him. And, you know, the royals do it well. They they make sure they spend time with everybody, you know. Well, uh, he's our he's our king now. So in your one minute, what what's your thought? Likeable guy? Well, I would say at that time he was, but okay. I mean, we all change. We we all changed, don't sure. we? Sure. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so I, I couldn't make a judgment on it today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, at the time, yeah, he seems uh, like a pleasant fellow and um, 
you know, I find every five years we evolve and our viewpoints change and we change. And, you know, he's older, so. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty yeah. sure he's, uh, you know, got the same issues we do. Yeah. But but he's putting in the effort to uh, press the flesh and chat with the guys. Oh, love it. Yeah. Um, it's just fantastic. Did you uh, catch any of the ceremonies yesterday? I did, yeah. I, I uh, just catched uh, a bunch of the YouTube stuff, the pre-recorded stuff. And, uh, yeah, I thought everything was done very well. Yeah, the drill is impressive, eh? I mean, amazing. Yeah, they did such a good job. You don't have to, uh, I don't think you have to to serve to appreciate the precision and the discipline and just the deportment of those uniforms turned out. It's, yeah. And just the logistics behind it, right? All these subunits practicing on their own, in yeah. their own locations yeah. and then coming together yeah. on the final and putting it in, in play. Yeah. And then just think about the security task and, you know, from uh, your patrol cop policing to your tactical teams to your security details for the actual every VIP where they're positioned. Yeah, that must have been a fun one. I mean, VIPs, as far as the eye can see, from I think literally every corner of the world descending on London on about 10 days' notice. Yeah. I wouldn't have wanted to be in the advanced team on the, any of those. I mean, where are you even housing all those advanced teams? I mean, every every yeah. country would, would have one and you're liaising between, well, as I said, I mean, every, every government, every country, save, you know, three but or But I'm four. pretty sure, you know, like anything like we do in the military and in the policing world, uh, under executive protection, you have your playbooks for yeah. all these um, events that are going to be coming up. Right. Right. And when King Charles dies in probably 10 to 20 years, uh, that will be the same playbook used that they just used. So, yeah. I mean, everything's there. It's just to execute. Right. London Bridge, I think they were calling it. And and I think you're right. I've read that for the last decade or so, they've been they've been drilling this past week. Mm-hmm. So, Gunny, 1986, you're in Cyprus. How'd you get there? Back it up. How'd you get into the armed forces? Yeah, so um, always being interested in the military. My dad was uh, British submarines. Oh, yeah. And uh, then we immigrated to, he immigrated to Australia. That's where I was born. Um, and uh, when we came over to Canada, uh, of course, my dad was into war movies and things like that. And, mm-hmm. the, and the thing that struck me the most was watching paratroopers. As soon as I saw that, that's what I want to do. Um, so I was laser focused from 12 years old. Yeah. Uh, I want to be a paratrooper. Yeah. So I, uh, joined the military in 82, uh, joined Queen's Own Rifles, uh, got in on their first jump platoon, did my course at 18. And then as soon as I had the bug, I was training with, um, three commando. That was our tasking to be attached to them. And uh, when I was a three commando, I saw the guys across the road. I'm like, who the hell are those guys? They go, those are, that's two commando. Like they look super checked out. I went, Roger that. I go, well, who are they? And then they said, well, they're Princess Patricia's King of Infantry. So that's where I went, right. That's where I'm going. So in 85, I transferred over to the regular army and got into the Patricia's. And uh, six months later, I was posted to the Airborne Regiment. You're talking about two commando, three commando, but you're mentioning other, you know, larger infantry units. Can you can you break down what the distinction is between these commando divisions and the Princess Pats yeah. or Queen's Rifles? So 
in the regular army, we have three regular force but uh, regiments. You have Princess Patricia's Canadian Infantry, which are out west in Alberta. Two battalions are in Alberta. That's where the brigade is. And then we have a battalion in Manitoba. And then you have the Royal Canadian Regiment. They're out east. And the Van Dues, the French Regiment, uh, which is in Quebec. At the time, then we also had the Canadian Airborne Regiment, which had one commando, which was Van Dues, two commando Patricias, three commando RCR. And then you had support commando, which was all our, obviously, our rats. Uh, so your truckers, your cooks, your clerks, all that good stuff, MPs. And then um, from there, what would happen is you would get, if you got your jump course, you'd be posted into the commando, you get there, and then you would do the airborne indoctrination course, which was a 10-day course introducing you to the airborne way of life, the way we jump and do our, after we land, how we get into RVs and stick roll-ups, um, how we get back together as a fighting force, along with a lot of physical tests. Um, so then after that, you get your maroon beret, which is the, the, the highest point at that time. Are you just raising your hand and say, I want to go airborne or you need a yeah, recommendation? You, yeah. So you put your hand up, you put your memo in and, uh, then you'll get picked up and, and pushed that way. And I appreciate this is the eighties. So this is a while ago, but yeah. What at that time was the was the purpose of the Canadian Airborne Regiment? So the primary focus of the Canadian Airborne Regiment was to uh, was sovereignty of the North. So it's the fastest way to rapidly insert troops into the Arctic. So that was our primary tasking. Um, so every winter, basically, we're up jumping into the Arctic and showing a basically a, a show of force um, up in the Arctic region, and then work in partnership with our uh, Canadian Rangers, which are the local subject matter experts of each individual area that we work in. So they're your basically your partisan link up. They are your um, guides. They know they know how to navigate the area. They can take you to where you need to go. Also with instructing you on different Arctic survival and things like that. So it's a very it was a good way for us to project ourselves to the north. I mean that's that's sort of a domestic type operation. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. And then um, secondary to that is being able to rapidly insert anywhere in the world. So we could move, we could insert ourselves anywhere in Canada within 24 hours. Um, and then the fighting force could be inserted anywhere in the world in 48 hours. And then the complete airborne battle group could be inserted anywhere in the world within 72 hours. So that was the purpose as a quick reaction force. It's interesting to hear you talk about, you know, northern sovereignty in the 80s. I mean, that's such a pressing issue now. I, it's I'm, huge. Yeah, but I, I guess I'm sort of impressed that even in the 80s, um, the Canadian Armed Forces was 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 thinking about those capabilities. Um, yeah. I mean, I think they're probably more important now than ever. But I don't know um, if most listeners would be aware that even 40 years ago, the Armed Forces was thinking about, as you say, rapid deployment to the north uh, to protect sovereignty. Yeah. And it's pretty amazing that we, the average citizen doesn't know what's going on up in the Arctic. There is a lot of countries that move in there, um, you know, surveying, trying to get minerals, um, trying to claim territory. So the, the use of, or the show of force by inserting there is very handy. And right now, since we don't have that <clears throat> regimental capability, um, 
now it's up to the rangers who are continuously patrolling those areas. So there are the eyes and ears for Canada. And did the regiment have sea and land capabilities as well, or are you guys simply jumping off planes? No, sea and land. So you, uh, we use amphibious assets as well. Um, and then the Pathfinder platoon also used uh, submarines whenever we could get a workable submarine. <laughs> These would be the, um, <laughs> the, uh, those old diesel um, yeah, uh, I was on the Iroquois once, and uh, yeah, my hat's off to those guys. That thing's tiny, smelly, um, good on them for operating in those things. So in your time in the 80s, is this the, the sort of the, the premier Canadian Armed Forces, um, I don't know, hostage rescue marine interdiction? Yeah. I mean, I know, you know, sort of post 9-11, those issues are, are pretty sexy and are maybe more well-known but sort of in the tail end of the Cold War, is this the best Canada had to offer? It is. Um, that was really our um, our gap um, between what we have now with the, with the Special Forces Command. Um, but the Canadian Armed Forces was wasn't Special Forces. It was uh, you know still considered a Tier Three conventional force. However, with more enablers, more ways of inserting. And yeah, all those ways of insertion sound cool. They're great. They're fun. Um, they give you that um, that flexibility on the battlefield uh, and the tactical and strategic levels. However, um, it is all those means are just means of insertion right. or transportation. Um, obviously, you know, there's lots of logistics behind all that good stuff. But uh, and seeing that Canadian Air Regiment wasn't special forces, um, it still with those different tasks that we had you know we'd be jumping in doing season holds of key infrastructures like uh back in the day uh, we still had radar stations uh airfields bridges nuclear plants oil fields all that this key infrastructure that we could jump in quickly and secure and defend um likewise at the same time it wasn't just about defensive moves we could jump into areas and then you know um, we were doing hostage rescue uh, scenarios uh, in the commandos. Uh, this, you know, definitely not the precision work that the guys do today. And likewise, in the SOFCOM and in the battalions, um, we really saw our CQB close quarter battle skills really started getting um, honed in uh, around 93. Right. Uh, when we started moving into Croatia, we're doing some good um, stuff back in the in the day. It was toss in a grenade, mow the area, go in. But now you're accountable for every round. So you can't in today's battlefield. It's just it's, it's too dynamic. It's not just bad guys that are in held up in a room. It, you know, it's a bad guys with friendlies, yeah. with hostages yeah. or human shields. So there's no longer throwing the M67 frag grenade and going to spray in and then, you know, kill everything. You've got to be accountable for every round you fire. Yeah, the battle space, I guess, has changed dramatically probably since um, those early Cold War capabilities were coming together to the yeah. urban landscape now where, as you say, there's there's is families and, and children and non-combatants in the mix. Yeah. You so I think um, like with the with the Airborne Regiment, uh, the way we were set up, yeah, it was a bit more advanced than um, than back in the battalions. Uh, our capabilities were better. Obviously, the fitness was better, the attitude, all that good stuff. So that gave you that 
that agile fighting force for sure. Um, but really after that, there was nothing else to shoot for. So when the Airborne Regiment got disbanded, um, yeah, it was a sad day, but I think we could all see the writing and what came of the regiment disbanding. Well, now we have Softcom, we have more capable units, we have better soldiers, we have better abilities. So at the end of the day, it worked out well. And we actually have more paratroopers now because the Canadian Special Operations Regiment have jumpers, JTF has jumpers, all the uh, um, attachments that come in. And likewise, each each regiment that I listed at the beginning has a has a third battalion, which is the light version of each battalion. They all have a jump company. So their jump companies are about 138 men mm. and they wear Maroon Berets. But I know with the Patricias, what we've done is we've qualified those guys, 138 guys with Maroon Berets. Then we go, all right, let's qualify the rest of the battalion. So you have the rest of the battalion are about 70% jump qualified, but not wearing room brace, but they're still jumping in on exercises. So we actually have more parachute capability than we did in the eighties. Yeah. You don't, you don't sound, um, bitter then about the disbanding of the airborne. If the, oh, not at all. I mean, <clears throat> everything's got to evolve. Everything has to transition. And like I said, you know, we've got, <laughs> we've got the seesaw and we have joint task force two now. I mean, it's amazing. Like these guys are incredible. The the soldiering is uh, insane, and uh, they're we're just making really good soldiers, good humans. Uh, there's a big sniper rifle over your shoulder. You um, you were sniper qualified at some point. What's the role of a sniper as it as it were in the airborne during your time? Well, I wasn't sniper in the airborne regiment. Um, I I got qualified when I got back to battalion. Oh, I see. But snipers were uh, like. Uh, like we are in battalion, like we have a sniper sniper platoons now. Uh, before we used to be grouped in with a reconnaissance platoon because you have to start in reconnaissance. And back in those days, there wasn't many snipers at all. I mean, we're still we're in that role now. Um, numbers have depleted because the war is done, and and historically that's always been the way. Once the war is finished, snipers seem to go by the wayside because it's hard to exercise snipers. So yeah. Uh, I really couldn't give you a set rep on what it was like in the Airborne Regiment for snipers. True. Uh, but as far as the skill set goes, I mean, I, uh, again, sort of in, in a post 9-11 world, um, me and probably a lot of Canadians are aware of, of Rob Furlong's feat of, mm -hmm. um, you know, as I've read, really putting the Canadian sniper course, uh, you know, or, or what, what the Armed Forces does um, on the map in a big way with his impressive, you probably know the yardage I don't shot. Well, it's interesting because um, the the records are held <clears throat> by Canadians, and they're all held by Princess Patricia's King of Light Infantry snipers. Yeah, yeah. Um, that tells you a lot, and I think it goes through the mindset of the Patricias. We're called the the Cowboys of the West, and the reason why is we we kind of run on big boy rules, and we're treated like grown ups. So we we try try to make self-thinkers out of everybody and in the sniper world you have to be a self-thinker you're operating in a two-man team minimum one and up to three if you're on a 50 cal so you have to these guys have to have the ability to think for themselves they have to think not only tactically but strategically and you also have to remember that sniper even though we're in the regiment or in the battalion 
we are actually a brigade asset weapon. We're not a battalion weapon, we're a brigade weapon. We can be tasked by a battalion, but a lot of time it's from brigade direction. So we have a brigade master sniper and we have a unit master sniper. What's the course of being, or the training platform to become a sniper? I, mean, I, th I think, you know, in a Hollywood movie, um, it's the long range glamorous shot from a, from a concealed mm -hmm. position, but I understand a lot more goes into that, that sort of training pipeline and skill set, other than um, finally making the shot of, of, a, of a person that you perhaps have tracked and located and, mm -hmm. and ranged out. Yeah, it's a, it's a long road and there is no real recipe. We have guidelines of how we wanna pick our guys, but first of all, you have to be infantry. Um, we have um, we have qualified non-infantry guys, uh, which is a risk, but it worked out great. We had two artillery guys that were a fact party, and they did their infantry reconnaissance course because that is you have to have reconnaissance before you move to sniper. Um, the reason why is in reconnaissance, obviously, you learn to work in small teams. Uh, you are uh, brought your navigational game up to the perfection level, planning, giving orders operating in those four-man teams with no sleep, no food, carrying heavy packs, making the crazy decisions uh, that impact um, basically strategic um, outcomes. So once you've gone the reconnaissance route, uh, you have to be marksman near weapon systems. Then we do a um, psychological testing on you. Uh, your file will go forward to the unit master sniper, and then we will make that call on who we pick. So what we do now is we'll um, pick about 24 guys to fill a 12 to 14 man course. So once you've made all those other stages, everything's good to go. We put you on selection. We give you minimal instruction on how to do a stock, how to conduct observation, how to judge distance. And then we put you right into the fire and we go all the way in and see who with that minimal direction can actually come out successful. Then once they're picked up and they go on course, then obviously it's detailed lessons and practice. The course itself is like no other. Um, it's all self-induced stress. You are failing stuff every day and your morale is low and you have to find a way to fight through it. No one's teaching you how to do this. You mm. just got to do it. Most people that go on this course are guys who've topped their courses or usually come in the top three. So these are all alphas. They're not used to failure. So it's hard on a lot of people. Um, I passed my course and I did not feel worthy uh, until I won the international competition. And uh, that was eight months later. Then after that, I went, yeah, okay, you know what? I think I'm worthy right now. But <laughs> you fail so much on the course, you just, you don't feel good about it at the end. And, and that's something we need to change too, um, because failure isn't bad. Failure is good. And we got to teach guys to get through it. Um, <clears throat> did you deploy overseas as a sniper? No, I wasn't. Uh, I was already uh, overranked. So I was out I of the platoon. Yeah. However, <laughs> I was uh, acting company sergeant major um, for a couple of weeks uh, when my sergeant major was away. Yeah. And we're going out on a company ambush uh, at night, three platoons uh, with each their own objective. However, all ambushes were interlocked with each other. 
uh, was quite a good operation. Uh, we actually moved our vehicles. We drove about 80 kilometers around, deployed in the back, dismounted, dismounted, uh, patrolling all the way into our positions. Vehicles left us and then went and leaguered up in the desert uh, north of us. So it looked like we were going somewhere else than what the actual objective was. So anyways, we're planning this and all that good stuff. And all I can see is, well, I have a sniper rifle here. So here I'm acting company Sergeant Major. And I'm like, hey, uh, sir, I think you need a sniper on this mission. Right. And he goes, no, I need my Sergeant Major. I go, roger that. I'll accept. I'll be on the left flank with the rifle. He goes, okay, bring it along. Nice. Like, nice. Oh. nice. So you got to make that job. Yeah. Um, yeah, unfortunately, our targets didn't appear that night because um, of our really crappy UAV that was flying uh, above us and it flies so low and it's so loud. We call it the lawnmower. So the bad guys are like, yeah, Canadians got their UAV up. We're not coming out. Uh, this is in Afghanistan? Yeah. Yeah. What year would this um, have been? Uh, that was 06. Okay. Uh, however, uh, we managed when we patrolled out, uh, we got to the desert, uh, vehicles weren't in location because uh, they were leaving it up somewhere else. So we had to call them. So we're in a, our defensive positions. And then I had a couple of targets come up at about 620. So I'd call 600 with our, um, <laughs> with our 10% factor. Um, and I had some sugar squeeze ready to go. I had these guys ID'd. And thank God I didn't uh, depress the trigger because then as he was maneuvering, he put his shirt on and it was a ANA Afghan national, sorry, AMP Afghan national police uh, shirt. And uh, yeah, so thank God I, I spent that time watching and making those decisions. Yeah. And I just, you know, when you have that feeling, listen to that feeling. Right. And Sure enough, puts the shirt on. I'm like, thank God. Yeah. I would not want to have that as a blue on blue. Yeah, it would have been a tough one. Um, <clears throat> was that your final overseas deployment? 06? I mean, when did you get out? Yeah, I got out in uh, out of the regular army in 08. Uh, then I rolled into the reserves. Couldn't go cold turkey. And that was part of the um, release procedure when you retire. Say, hey, hey, do you want to go with these guys? I'm not sure because yeah. I, I, th I think it'd be too hard to go out right away. Uh, just go cold turkey. I think it'd be bad. So anyways, I, um, when I got back in 06, I was home for a couple of months and I uh, got called up for this other mission overseas. Uh, it was just uh, four of us. We went over uh, to a host country and we're training uh, their special forces guys on basic stacks. Now, these guys are qualified in their own countries and uh, we're just doing some basic four-man stacks. So I'm like, all right, so bunch of guys line up, stack up, show me what you got. And it was like nothing. I'm like, okay, Roger that. We are going to walk through this, talk through this, all that good stuff. So we do that. We did spend all morning. It was painful. And uh, they finally got it. So, uh, you know, eventually we're going live. And uh, But no, we're not going live at this point. So after lunch, I was going to go, right, we can go in and do blank and we can add that noise uh, before we go live 
uh, you know, we had three days to go live. Um, so they were doing pretty good. We go for breakfast or a lunch, <laughs> come back. I'm like, all right, let's uh, warm up. Let's stack up. And it was like, we didn't teach them anything. The only thing special forcey about them was the tab that was on their arm. Right, right. Is, and is this contractor work or is, is this Canadian military? No, this is Army. Yeah. Army. Yeah. Yeah. So I was over there with Captain Jonathan Schneider, who uh, was with me in 06 in my company. And uh, we went together on that. Um, I got a CDS combination. He wrote me up for a CDS combination for uh, sniper stuff. And uh, so it's a very small little tiny badge. And I wear that with pride because John wrote me up for that. And the guy's a stud. Um, he got the star of military valor in Afghanistan in 08, yeah. and then he was killed there. He died. And uh, the guy's just an absolute stud. Miss him every day. Sorry to hear that. Um, this is what, 20-year career for you, 20-plus? Yeah, 23 years regular and uh, 31 with the reserve. Um, and then <laughs> so I go to the sheriffs, and uh, I'm just a normal patrol guy. And after this op tempo of the last right, 10 years right. is crazy. I was just like, ah, this, this isn't the break I need. This is kind of slow. It's boring. So I'm like, I need a mission. Yep. Um, and that's the neat thing about the reserve. It's almost like being a military contractor because you can pick and choose stuff. So I'm like, what do we got in the pipe? Uh, Sierra Leone, West Africa. All right, put me in. So I went over there in 2010. Uh, what was going on in Sierra Leone in 2010? So it was a British mission. It was like a bar joke. 36 Brits, six Cana- or nine Canadians, three Americans, two Nigerians, and a Jamaican. Okay. Walk into a bar. Yeah, yeah. Walk into a country. And uh, it was basically uh, what was called the International Military Assistance Training Team. And my job, I was the regimental sergeant major of the uh, military college for officers, senior staff officers for major and above. And uh, so I was instructing these guys on uh, combat team stuff um, and discipline. So, and I would pay the guys and I was in charge of camp security for the entire camp for the Brits. Um, yeah, so it was pretty diverse. It was good, good gig. And uh, we'd go and insert into the jungle for two weeks at a time, do some patrols. And uh, it was a lot of fun, good people. And this is you as, as now, a reserve member. That's right. Incredible. Uh, so, Gunny, why just why'd you get out? How how'd you know in 06 that you know, or out in 08, I guess, that it was your time? Yeah. It was just off tempo, things like that. And I was supposed to go back to Afghanistan and wait. My son was deploying as well, and my wife said, "You're not going again, and I don't want you both gone at the same time." Yeah, I hear that. So. That was a great decision because I finally realized what she went through when I was gone because I was a basket case when he was over. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and selfishly, yes, I wanted to be over there in 08, but I know I, you know, I wouldn't be able to make an impact on his outcome. But in my own mind, would have been at least I'm in the same country. Um, but yeah, my poor wife, if both of us were gone, it would have been horrible. So after that, it was uh just some other decisions happening in the military. I got moved to an anti-tank company that was positioned in the Strathcona's tank regiment. And my whole career was reconnaissance and sniper. Uh, now I'm thrown into anti-tank. Um, 
and I should have gone over to para company starter mater. That spot was open, but I got pushed into the other realm because they wanted to move that sergeant major out so he could get overseas. Um, anyways, there was some decisions made. Nothing's beneath us, but there were some decisions made uh, for my troops from higher up, having them saying to do tasks that were, they were beneath them because these guys just wanted to get to Afghanistan and this unit that I was in wasn't letting them go. Mm. So we did our best and we got a, got a few over, but I, I couldn't make those decisions anymore and feel good about myself. We got a war on, I got troops who want to go and the morale is low because they're not going and you're making me send them to Wainwright for right. general duties. Right. Grab some reservists to do that. Right. So I couldn't push that, that outcome anymore. And, uh, it was just, I was at the point, it's like, you know what? Time to get out. So you just know, I think. And um, uh, so I looked at the sheriff. Sheriff's had exec protection. And uh, I said, that's what I want to do. Had you been thinking about sheriffs? Were they on your radar for a while? Or how does um, how does the sheriffs pop up? Well, when I was thinking, you know, uh, a couple months prior to getting out, I'm like, did my research on different law enforcement. And then I saw that these guys had executive protection to the premier. Mm. So I said, yeah, I'm going to go do this. So I applied and three months later, they called me, interviewed, boom, gave me a course date, threw in my release, retired. I left the army on a Friday. I started a recruit course on a Monday. No shit. Yeah. So what's the, uh, I mean, what, I mean, I'm picturing you as a, as a 20 plus year vet going to a course with a lot of guys and girls in the early twenties, and this is probably their first uniform job. It must've been quite an experience. It is, but it, the army trains you for this and the, especially in the infantry, because you're always going on courses. And when you're on a leadership course, you play the role of follower as a subordinate. So if you're in your command role, where it could be the same rank, but you're in command role, I am just your troop. Right. So you have to be that good follower and respect that. And, you know, from the, especially from the infantry side, you know, we have young leaders. Um, it doesn't matter if you're a 22 year old, say master corporal and you're a 40 year old private, obviously that 22 year old master corporal knows what he's doing. So you trust that process and yep. that, yep. and that qualification. So that was the same thing. And of course, you know, when I was going to, I'm like, oh, I hope I'm not going into something hokey here. Right. And it was amazing. The instructors were incredible. I would have rated them as in my top level of instructors. Just fantastic. The this, enthusiasm, this, the professionalism, the fitness, the knowledge, it was incredible. So once I started training, I'm like, yeah, I made a good decision here. Is this in-house or is this at a... a, a um... In-house, we have our own staff college. Oh, no shit. Okay. Yeah. And and what are this, what are the skill sets and competencies that are being taught at the sheriff. I mean, how long is it? Uh, that course was, what was it 14 weeks? Okay. And then you have other training after that as well. So it's everything, driving, uh, verbal judo, law, uh, just the normal stuff, defensive tactics, shooting, um, everything. I mean, it, it sounds like it's pretty similar to police college type it competencies. It is. It's the same. Um, all the standards are the same. Uh, the shooting standards are the same. Defensive tactics is the same. Everything's the same, um, including driving. Like we supply driving instructors to Empton Police Service, Calgary Police Service. Like we'll work hand in hand with them. Likewise, they'll teach on us. Um, in executive protection, we taught um, the EPS tactical guys will come on course. Uh, we always throw them a couple of spots because they run 
witness protection, mm. details, yep. Yep. that kind of thing. Yep. So we get a couple guys qualified on that from their tag team. Coming from, well, both Nova Scotia and British Columbia, uh, the sheriff programs in those provinces are pretty different. They're, you know, you know, I think technically they can perform other services, but generally speaking, sheriffs protect the courthouse and yeah. transport prisoners. Mm-hmm. What you're describing sounds like a pretty broad mandate. Yeah, it is. It's really cool. The Alberta sheriffs uh, are highway patrol. So jurisdiction is all of Alberta. Uh, we have cars and motorcycles. We have BMWs and Harley Davidsons for the uh, motorcycle teams. They work hand in hand, integrated with the RCMP units, uh, integrated. Um, so that works out well. And likewise, if their jurisdictions are close to the city, like we have a highway patrol unit in Leduc, then they'll work hand in hand with uh uh, EPS, likewise with the guys down south, CPS, Madison Hat Police, and they'll also work together on uh, uh, drunk driving checkpoints. Also, we have surveillance teams. Surveillance teams work up to federal level investigations. Um, we have our counterterrorism intelligence unit. Uh, they do all planning at strategic levels. Uh, we have the executive protection unit, my unit. Uh, then we have our bread and butter, which is the court houses, prisoner transport, and likewise, we do all the prisoner transport across Canada. So it's kind of a cross of uh, provincial police force and U.S. Marshals is best how we can describe that. And, and what was it about executive protection that, that drew you in? I mean, I, I don't understand from your military career, close protection was part of, of your experience, Yeah, but you so knew I that's did, what uh, you wanted? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um because you're working um, at a tactical level, if you're working as a you know operator, I like that. I don't like the office setting that kills me. And uh, anyways, I got into that. How I got into that, I was training the Edmonton Police Tactical Snipers for about three years. The guy running the ERT team at the time was uh, John Bisher. Uh, who is a legend in that uh, he's still brought in to help with selection for um, tag team. Anyways, uh, so I'm in patrol uniform. He's walking downstairs with the premier and sees me. He goes, Tim, like John. And I goes, we'll talk. I'm like, Roger that. So yeah, so he drafted me up because he knew my capabilities. And with that unit, that's how that unit is. It's, uh, you know, we want the best people in there. So it's a lot of ex-military ex-police, uh, tactical guys that could move into that position. So what's a, what's a, a day in the life of the executive protection unit like? It's long. It's, it's hard. It's uh, onerous. You know, you start your days at <clears throat> 6 in the morning. You arrive, get everything ready, get things uh, good to go, get ready for pickup, and see what the day, if it's just a normal day at the ledge, which is no such thing as a normal day, pick up, get them into the office, um, grab your coffee, get them secure, and start planning the rest of the day for all the changes. So we have a schedule, but then it will constantly change. So how does it change so quickly? You're like, oh, wow, we're in Edmonton all week. And then at 10 o'clock, it's, oh, by the way, you're flying to Toronto tomorrow, your advanced team. And the other partner, you're flying to Ottawa. And then we're going to go Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, back to Edmonton. So you're making your advance work just as quick as you can and just reacting. 
And the nice thing is with the exec protection units, we're all interlinked with all the other provinces that have um, teams. So what we do is we link in with those guys, go, hey, we're coming in. They provide a driver, uh, that infrastructure there for us. And um, so once we arrive on advanced team, we go around with that driver, check out all our sites, do our advanced work, and then get ready for pickup whenever the premier arrives. Likewise, in the States, the state troopers do the same job we do. So we're linked into all the state troopers. They'll drive for us down there. When they come up here, we are assigned to them because, and we don't build back. So we're not charging people for their hours because you don't want to be a team left high and dry somewhere. Right. Um, when we go internationally, then we use embassy drivers and embassy translators. So when you say he, you're talking about the premier? Yes. And uh, who else in, in Alberta in your time was afforded executive protection? Well, it's all, all the premiers and the lieutenant governor. So I worked with Premier Redford, uh, Hancock, Prentice, Notley, and Kenny. Care to comment if you had any favorites? I would say... <laughs> <laughs> Not to put you on the spot. Uh, they're all good except for one, which was the first one I listed. Um, and, you know, when you're in executive protection, it's like the army, you're apolitical. Yes, I am a conservative, but, uh, you know, I had Premier Notley for four years, who's NDP. Great lady. Um, she was amazing to work for. Just I don't agree with her politics, True. but that's not my job. And my job is to keep her and her team safe. Right, right. Um, but she was great to work for. So, But my favorite, I have to say, is yep. Kenny. Kenny okay. was uh, the hardest working guy I've ever seen in my life. That guy would go 24 hours straight without sleeping. I'm, I'm guessing your team has to wear a bit of that if he's on you're the wearing, go. You're wearing it all. Yep. You're wearing it all. Um, and, uh, one mission in three days, I think I slept about four hours, uh, which isn't safe, which isn't great, but that's what you got to do to get the mission done. And, and again, you've said there's no such thing as a typical day, but, um, you're picking the premier up at his or her home and hotel room. And from there yeah, you're to the ledge, up from to whatever meetings. timing is dictated yeah. and you might be going to the office, you might be going to uh media hit, you might be going to, for an appointment where he's chatting with someone. Um, so you could be all over the place. And when you're looking at your calendar before your shift and getting things straight and getting everything down, com completely changed to an overseas deployment. Um, I did a, uh, my one of my last missions I did, I was in New York, DC, Toronto, and got home. We worked eight days on, six days off. That was a 10 day stint. So I went two days into my two days off. So this is December when I got home. And then on day one of my first day off, now it's only four days, I get a phone call and I'm dropping dry cleaning off, getting all my logistics done. It's like, hey, uh, can you deploy to Germany? I'm like, yeah, sure, when? Two days. I'm like, holy uh, shit. Yeah. I go, yeah. When, are we, when are we coming back? Uh, Christmas Eve. I'm like, yeah, put me in. Um, yeah, it's hard work. Yeah, it's, but like I tell my troops in the army and things when you're deployed, enjoy these deployments because at one, one day it's going to be gone. Yeah. So yeah, it's a, it's a struggle. So basically I worked the entire month of December. When I think about, you know, the images you see in newspapers of, of executive protection for, for VIPs, a couple guys or girls in suits, earpieces, that's what you see. 
Mm. But I expect behind the scenes, there's an awful lot of moving parts to make that walk down the red carpet look so smooth. Oh, it's insane. Were you guys doing your own threat assessments about days when you'd need more officers or fewer or sidearms or none or, or, you know, that's all internal? Yeah, we have our own intelligence unit and um, they will give us the breakdown of everything. Like uh, not everything is a, you know, uh, you know, a crazy scenario. Uh, it's fun when you're training new guys and they're like, okay, I'm, I was going to get the blueprints. Okay. This is not the movies. You don't need blueprints for a right. hotel. Right, right, right. You'd use your assets on the ground. What does a, what do all these buildings have? Venue centers. They have their own security detail. Talk to these guys. They know that's their building. They're the agents of that building. Have them walk you around, check everything out. Use them as guides, have them securing points. Uh, that you can't secure yourself. Um, so yeah, so our intelligence team would um, give us the int on whatever mission we're doing, and then we would develop our plan. Sometimes we use our surveillance guys and provide under uh, UCs, undercover guys, put them in the crowds, all that good stuff. Immediately, everybody's on the Facebook sites because right. these people aren't smart and sure. they post everything on sure. Facebook. We're going down to this and this is what we're gonna, great, awesome. So we can get Pornox done before we even this mission's on. So if we're heading south, southern Alberta, and we get you know Medicine Hat Police to do door knocks for us on our behalf, and go, hey, we saw this Facebook post, maybe, maybe take that down, maybe not show up. Wow. Okay. So we get that taken care of. Um, use your enablers on site, all that good stuff. And um, a really interesting one, uh, we had Redford in DC um, and we're doing this, she's on a panel on the stage. So we shouldn't be going hands-on when we're in different countries because we do have our other enablers there. So we had DC uh, Capital City Police on site here and you can imagine a massive crowd. So this is being broadcast live. And then on our earpiece, we have our incel talking to us going, right, there's a guy with a yellow shirt, third row. This is who he is. So we're getting live data from Alberta in DC, identifying these guys. So anyways, we had this uh, one guy, he made a rush for the stage and well, I'm up channeled. I got my number one down below. And I just close that gap, take this guy down, and we clear him off. The DC police were closer than I was, but I'm I'm getting this guy. Right. And um, anyways, we handled that. That was live on TV. <laughs> and uh, Premier Redford isn't very emotional person mm-hmm. and doesn't register anything. But she gave me a fist bump when we were moving into a media hit afterwards. So I'm like, oh, I'll man, I got acknowledged. Wow, amazing. Was there, was there a lot of that in your time of sort of overzealous political activists? Maybe not at the end of the day wanting to do physical harm, but just getting way too close to people that they really have no business yeah. being in their space? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's kind of a good question of how, like, you see a lot of bodyguards going hands-on. If you're going hands-on, you've lost the plot, I think, mm. I believe. Because our job is a is we're making watching this person live their life and keep them secure. But you, it's, cameras are everywhere. Media is everywhere. You'll get rogue media, like mainstream media, being clowns. But you can't go, hey, 
because then what are they going to report? Yeah. You're the Premier's story. Goon squad. Yeah. 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 Right. So you give them that freedom of movement, the freedom of play, you know, you can kind of edge them out if you're doing a tighter box, but it's about letting everything play out realistically. Now, when you have people coming up to you and they're high rate and you got guys on your outer box, you go talk to those people because people just want to be heard. They're like, I want to talk to the premier. And I'm like, hey, roger that. But this isn't the place to do it. And I understand your frustration. I go, what's the issue? They'll tell you the issue and you go, hey, you know what? I get it. I feel the same way. I said, uh, but you know who would love to hear is the executive assistant. You see that guy dressed? <laughs> no, but because they want to be heard, right? And give them the card, go go talk to that fellow. Oh, thank you. And off they go and talk and you just defuse the situation without having to go hands-on and go, hey, you know, you're not talking to him. People just want to be heard. And that's all exec protection is about. If you're doing it right, you're talking people off. If you're on it, the outer team, you're not with with the P, then you be, you're able to talk these people down. And then people with mental health issues, those are always red flags. See, you watch these people, the way they're walking, it's like, okay, let's keep our eye on this guy. And then you get a bit, send a guy to get a bit closer to him. And then you can tell, okay, it's just a mental issue. It's like, just watch this guy and, uh, you know, life will be good. Um, but it's not about, it's about all that, as you said before, all that pre-planning. Right. Pre-planning mitigates the actual mission. If you've pre-planned well, nothing's going to happen. And if something does happen, the reaction to it is responsive and quick. So what is what is, what is the advanced team doing? You me- you've mentioned that a couple of times, the importance. They're out there quick. They're using mm-hmm. the local drivers or local law enforcement. Yeah. But, you know, if, so you- advanced, if we're going on advanced team, yeah, we're checking everything out, right? So airports. So we go link up with the airport police. Tell them who's arriving, what we require, um, because, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. Even if you're picking up the premier, you can't stop your goddamn car in the pickup zone, right? <laughs> sure, 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 sure. So, yeah, throw the lights on. And as uh, long as you got the, the local law enforcement at the airport geared up, then you can do your thing. So right to that point, right? Getting off the plane, being guided off the plane. So we'll get a guy, we'll go airside, pick us up the plane, come through with the airport police leading, again, being our guides, adding more people to our our, uh, defensive posture and uh, get into our car, off we go. But all that other planning was doing all our route planning to the airport, alternate routes, doing the whole hotel, checking all the cards because cards fail and okay. using the security to take us around um checking all the other venues linking up with their local security details all your routes to everything all your alternate routes then all the unknowns so if a particular premier mm-hmm. likes to eat steak or certain place they like to go and have drinks we then also go and check out all the things that they might do Right. So say for Notley love to run, we'd go run 10 K with her every morning. So big one is find a good 10 K running route where we can provide security while running and being able to maneuver the vehicle to keep close by. How many guys on your team could run 10 K? Everybody. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. One of our guys, he's a stud. He, uh, he was a sergeant from highway patrol who came into the unit and he was a ultra marathoner. 
it was a hundred miler. Wow. That's something. Uh, yeah. Anyways, yeah, you're up at six in the morning with her doing your 10 K and then you got the rest of the day to deal with. And you know, you're not going to bed to one. So it makes for long days. So how many, how many persons are cycling through to provide the level of coverage and detail that a premier is going to need? I mean, you got, well, I can't give you numbers. Um, cause people are listening, Fair enough. I, we have the appropriate amount. So it's, it's a whole, it's a whole team of persons who are coming out to provide the need, the necessary coverage. That's right. Yeah. And in your, in your career was local law enforcement, um, typically pretty receptive of your requests. And oh, your... Amazing. Yeah. Local law enforcement, incredible, right? They all want to help. Um, uh, that's what I love about that community. Um, and you know, especially when it's a high profile thing, like a premier, everyone yeah. wants their hands on that yeah, thing yeah. and they want to get close. And some of them get overzealous because some of them start talking to the premier. It's like, <laughs> don't talk to the premier. They'll talk to you. <laughs> like you're not having a conversation. Right. 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 right? So, and it just amazes me, like, you know, even up to guys that are sergeants or inspectors and they're just talking like this guy's your friend. It's right. like, no, that's not the protocol, dude. And we, and we brief these guys. So sometimes they'll get overzealous, but over than that, they're always on, ready to go help us out. Do you get to know the, the VIPs well? I mean, I, I appreciate professionalism is so important, but are there, there off the clock moments when you can share a joke with Kenny or talk. Oh, all of them. Uh, all of them are like that. Yeah. You got to remember we're with them all day, every day. So you get kind of get Stockholmed and yeah. they get Stockholmed right. to you. Right. Right. And, um, every, every single one of them has a different personality and a, a different thing. Um, you know, Redford wouldn't give you the time of day, but if she's by herself, she'll talk away. So yeah. you're, you're there to chat and, let her vocalize and mm -hmm. sound off on you. Uh, other ones, um, like Notley was amazing. She was great to chat with, great sense of humor, good person. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, we'd make little jokes. I, you know, we'd have to do folk fest in Edmonton with her and I hate that music and she knows that. She goes, sorry, you have to come all weekend on your birthday weekend. I'm like, AP, it's the job. So, during the concert, she comes out with a, like a little cake with a birthday candle and saying happy birthday to me. So that was kind of nice. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and we just throw little digs at each other about our music tastes. I'm a punk guy and she's a folk music guy. And, um, you know, so that kind of thing. And same thing with Premier Kenny, great sense of humor and uh, super hard worker. Very appreciated. You find respect for law enforcement's been increasing or decreasing in your time? I mean, I know you're out of the game now for a couple of years and it's been a lot of high profile sort of issues of, of, you know, defunding police and all sorts of stuff. But, you know, in your time where people, and by people, I mean, men and women who are, who are coming to see a politician or glad hand on a rope line, was there still deference and respect in Alberta anyway? Oh, big time. Yeah. Um, it was uh, very, Really good to see, actually. Okay. Because, you know, that de definitely gauges your optics of what's going on out there. And overall, um, really good. When you're at big events, <clears throat> you'll see, um, you can see some of the people. But that's that's a, a, a minuscule amount of people. And they're just haters to start with. Right. Right. 
right? So you're not going to change their mind. Um, but no, overall it was good. Um, I've been out of the game now, and especially since the, you know, the defund the police stuff yeah, has yeah. happened. I don't know what the optics are like right now. There was a relatively high profile interaction with uh, someone harassing Minister Friedland. I think maybe it was her traveling in Alberta. I don't know if you got a chance to watch it was, the yeah, video. Yeah. Um, what did you think about, about that interaction? There was nothing wrong with it. And that, so that's what the left loves to play at. If they get attacked like that, it's like, everyone's against me. You're a politician, whether you're a man or a woman, I don't care. <laughs> if people are upset at you, you're voted in by us. And that's the response you're going to get. That's the optics. That's the atmosphere. Because you're going to go, hmm, maybe these guys are upset at me. Right. So, um, yeah, I didn't see anything wrong with that exchange. And, uh, but if you're, if you can't handle some verbal, uh, assault, maybe don't be in the job. Uh, Gunny, we were talking before we started recording about, um, the funeral of the, of the queen and what's been happening in London the last 10 days as a, uh, former executive protection guy, you get, um, chills thinking about working that job in a good way or does it give you anxiety thinking yeah. about if you were a guy no, with an earpiece in London I, right now? <laughs> I actually said to my wife I'm like ah she goes you wish you were there right I'm like yes you know um it'd be the pinnacle be my, right for for, for yeah. someone in your line of work to be on the ground liaising with every police department and military the world over yeah uh yeah I, I can't imagine well, because it's, I love being in that atmosphere and seeing how everybody works and comes together. And we're all really similar and the same when it comes down to it. Um, Premier Kenny, actually, he he didn't go, he went over on his own. He paid his own way, stood in line for 14 hours to pay respects to the Queen. So, um, you know, uh, I'm sure the detail was over there with him. He doesn't go uh, anywhere on, you know, on his own. Um but obviously that would be less um, planning because he wasn't involved in the actual ceremony itself. Sure. I think I probably know the answer to this question, but um, having now had a career that spanned traditional military service and uh, law enforcement work, if you could do it over again, would you still go Army first or would you uh, have explored policing as a, as a first career? I, I would have done Army first for sure. Um, but, you know, hindsight's everything, right? Sure. And... Uh, I think I definitely would have uh, gone policing. And it's funny you say that because uh, some of the things I did in the sheriff's uh, had some pretty good, crazy things happen. And the chief uh, was like, you know what, Tim? You would have uh, loved being in policing. This is up your alley. I'm yeah. like, yeah, Roger. Because, you know, these guys are doing it every day. I, right. You know, right. in the Army, I'm doing it when only when I'm on mission. Right. Do you think most Canadians know about the capabilities of the Canadian Armed Forces? I mean, we were talking earlier about your time no. into commando and parachuting in north and insertion. And um, I think as someone who's never served, that there's a real lack of knowledge, which I think translates a little bit into lack of pride about what our armed forces have done historically yeah. and, and are today able to do. Yeah. It's... It. <laughs> You know, we just don't do it well projecting our message out there. And I'll give you the best example. Uh, my son's a search and rescue technician. There are people in the military, in the Canadian military, don't even know we have search and rescue. 
when I talk to some people, I go, yeah, my son's a SAR tech. I'm like, what's that? Right. Search and rescue. Oh, oh, he's a civilian? I said, no, no, he's Air Force. They're like, what are you talking about? And it's such a small trade. And the over 70 years that trade's been together, it's less than 700 people have been in it. And at any given time, there's only about 145 operators. That's how small that trade is. That's how um, rare yeah. that trade is. Yeah. And But people in the military don't know about it. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So for civilians who don't know anything about the military, I can I can get that. But there's people in the military who don't even know that this 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 trade exists. So it's not just a civilian side; it's even military side that we don't do well with um, getting our message out. You think um, Canada's involvement in the war in Afghanistan has been appropriately told? I mean, you, you've been there. Uh, I don't think there. so. Um, but you know, it was you know I had all those warm up conflicts and. You know, you go to those places and you can see that our equipment sucks right. and you see some third world countries with better equipment. Then let's go to Afghanistan 06 and we end up being the most modern fighting force on the ground. Americans were coming to us going, wow, where'd you guys get this equipment? The Brits at the time had absolutely nothing. The Brits had Land Rovers with blast blankets and their body armor was like a little six by six plate over the heart. That was it. They had nothing. The Americans, you know, they're they're traveling around in Humvees. So if you got a section of eight guys, that's two Humvees, but only two guys per vehicle can dismount. And then, yeah, you have a 50 cal mounted, but you can't shoot that on the move. You can, but you're not going to hit anything. Right. And a Canadian infantry section has a 25 millimeter chain gun that can hit a human at, you know, 1800 meters while the vehicle's going 60 kilometers an hour across country up and down. And then you have seven assaulters that get out of the back while you have that fire support. So, yeah, uh, I think that's why we did so well over there. But people don't know this. So at the time, um, yeah, uh, you know, we're kicking butt and having fun and um, the entire conflict over there, Canada never 911 to anyone. And when coalition forces got in trouble, they would 911 us and we'd come in. But that's not reported. I was going to say that, and, you mean, you're, 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 um, evidently speaking with pride about Canadian accomplishments and involvement. And I, as speaking as an outsider, I don't know if the average Canadian appreciates that. Um, the, the, no, the, they don't know. The capabilities, the technology, um, you know, the reliance by by partner forces. You know, it's wonderful to hear, but, but mm -hmm. it feels like um, a chapter that I hope will be told in, in years ahead. But... I hope so. Um, but it's like anything. It's a short memory. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you look at Canadian forces today, um, you know, you probably got 70% that were never in Afghanistan that are serving right now. So that whole group of leadership, um, for instance, my company commander in Afghanistan is now the brigade commander. So think about the other officers. They're probably retired now. Yeah, they're out. Gone. So now you have company commanders who haven't even been overseas. So lessons learned from Afghanistan are probably not being utilized today. And we're back to the conventional playbook. So what did we learn? And during Afghanistan, we did a really good job with our lessons learned. So we had a team back in Gagetown. We'd have a, our, a battle. A lot of our battles were six to eight hours. We had after action that when we could. And then that gets sent back to Gagetown. They they look at it, they analyze, and then they think of ways to improve. 
So about every two weeks, our training tactics and procedures are are changing. We're evolving just like the enemy's evolving to our TTPs, right? Yeah. So yeah. a lot of what would happen to us when, when we first got over there in 06 and we got the labs and we get hit, we wouldn't drive out of the, out of the hit. <clears throat> we would do our, what our drill is, turn into it and assault. So we were being effective and taking these guys out and not just getting shot at and then moving, which is what the other forces were doing before we got there. So that screwed these guys up. Then they started, then, oh shit, we can't fight these Canadians. Then they started hitting us with the IEDs. Right. Right. So the first couple of months was basically we had free reign of just, we're just taking everything out. Then after that, they need to start putting the IEDs in. Gunny, when did you get out of the sheriffs? What year was that? Uh, 2013. No. Oh shit. No. Wrong. 2020. 2020. And I gather you're still pretty active in the veteran community. Oh yeah, definitely. What, what yeah, you, what I just you, ran a uh, um, a jumping event yeah. for 89 vets. Okay. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, Operation Pegasus Jump. Uh, we run it in Campbell River. It's the only veteran-owned drop zone in Canada. Uh, one guy's an ex-Pathfinder, uh, who is my boss, and the other guy's an ex-Search and Rescue Master Warrant Officer. And one of our pilots is an ex Master Warrant Officer Search and Rescue as well, ex Airborne Regiment. And um, yeah, so we ran this. We had guys from Ontario, all the way from Ontario, come out. Um, we ran it like, a, looks like a Ford operating base. Uh, we had steak dinner, burgers. Um, it was good. So we trained all these guys to jump out of the plane. And quite a few actually stayed and did their, got their solo license hmm. along with their spouses. So it was, uh, it was a really good event. Great. Is a, is a fundraiser? It wasn't a fundraiser. Uh, it's expensive. It's like 300 bucks a jump. Oh, wow. um, so yeah. I, D, I DIY'd this. Uh, you know, I'm not a foundation or anything. So yeah. I just did a GoFundMe page, made yeah. 15 grand. Uh, kind of connect, uh, donated 5,000, knowing there's no tax receipt. They're like, hey, wow. what do you need? Yeah. That's yeah. five grand go. I'm like, yeah, awesome. Yeah. So I was able to um, augment their cost and take 120 bucks off that 300 bucks. Oh, yeah. Great. Okay. Plus, then with the other monies uh, that went to the food, right? So we bought steak dinner for everybody, uh, hamburgers, hot dogs for the meet and greet, yeah, all that good stuff, and t-shirts, swag, and all that good stuff. If there's a young person listening and they're considering a career in the Canadian Armed Forces, what would you tell them? Join, yeah, <laughs> join. Uh, you know, whatever, whatever trade. We need all trades. Um, whatever. Whatever interests you, if you're an engineer, go into go into the Navy, you know, um, lots of good jobs in the Navy. And uh, also, so you can go in there as a technician and then you can go on there and enhance shipboarding party course. You can go on dive course. Every every trade is eligible in the Navy. Um, Air Force, great technical trades within the Air Force itself. And then obviously with the Army. And a good point to note is any any trade can go to anything. So if you're an avionics guy, you can apply to JTF, you can apply to CSOR. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a bit tougher for you because you haven't got that army background, sure. but it's doable. There's a lot of guys that have done it. And likewise, every trade can also go search and rescue. You know, the world is your oyster. I'd like to say, you know, push people into combat arms, but um, we need all trades. So, and if something interests you, that's going to drag you into it. So go for it. Last question. Why do they call you Gunny? 
That's a good one. So uh, <laughs> when I was training the Edmonton TAC team, uh, the staff started running it, uh, who then became my boss in executive protection. Um, he gave me that call sign, um, you know, because I'm always, right now my hair is long, but I always have high and tight. And uh, so Gunny is a American Marine Corps term. And uh, so I looked that way to John. So he started calling me Gunny. And uh, and he called my wife the Gun Queen. <laughs> okay. So once I got two sec protection, he just started using that. And then everyone called me that, including all the premiers. Yeah. <sighs> There, there yeah. are worse call signs. Day, day one, you, have, you know, the premier going, hey, Gunny, where are, we, where are we going? Where do you want me? It's like, all right, I guess this is sticking. Well, look, uh, Gunny, I really appreciate your time this morning and uh, I appreciate your service. Thank you. If you enjoyed my conversation with Gunny and are curious to know what he's up to these days or see photos from his time with the Alberta sheriffs or the Canadian Armed Forces, you can find him on Instagram at army underscore SGT underscore major. Be sure to tune in next time when Dr. Scott Blanford, a professor at Wilfrid Laurier University in Ontario and a retired police officer of more than 30 years, joins me to talk about police recruitment, training, and educational standards. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Dan Coles, and we're under reserve.